Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Well, <clears throat> what I wanted to talk about today was about communities of practice. And I was, I've been thinking about this quite a bit and doing a little bit of a reflection and writing about it. Um, because I had this question, what does it mean to consider the Buddha's teachings from a community or systems perspective? So um, I think at the heart of the teachings are the teachings on mutual causality or dependent origination, but we have to work our way there from the outside. We might start with Vogel's definition of community as a group of people who care about each other. So there are many kinds of groups, right? Sports fans, museum members, academic departments, but what distinguishes a community from a group is <clears throat> um, uh, just a group of some shared interest, for example, is that that necessary quality of caring about each other. So how does a community organize and manage itself? Um, Joan Tronto in Who Cares talks about the larger public sphere in democratic politics as the ongoing determination of who cares. <clears throat> who cares for children? Who cares for the elderly? For transportation? For working families? For defense? for highways and bridges, for education, for the environment. So in any community, we're establishing not only who cares, but what the community cares for. So let's take a look at the Buddha's teachings from the perspective of community. These core teachings are usually interpreted and understood from an individual view. The precepts as personal ethical code, for example. But the genius of the Buddha's teachings is that it is also possible to scale them up to the level of small sitting groups, families, workplaces, nation, and the world. How so? Hold on here. Something's off. There, is that better? Um, <clears throat> so this is what I'm interested in exploring. So let's begin with one of the most basic teachings of the Buddha his first teaching to his former companions following his enlightenment, the four truths of the noble ones. These are those truths that traditionally are believed to be individual realizations of the noble ones, those who have awakened. They are therefore also investigations that can lead us to awakening, both as individuals and as a sangha. So the first one, of course, is the truth of dukkha. The first noble truth is the truth of dukkha. Dukkha is an adjective that means painful or stressful. For spiritual communities, the same definition provided by the Buddha applies. Birth is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, death is dukkha, not getting what the community wants is dukkha, not being with what is loved is dukkha, having to be with what is unloved is dukkha. This applies equally to communities as to individuals. To say that something is dukkha or painful is not to say that is its only quality. Certainly birth is accompanied also by joy, relief, hope, <clears throat> anxiety about the future and so on, both for individuals and for communities. The Buddha was not saying that dukkha is all that life is. Rather, in the course of our life, in the life of a community, we will encounter many painful and stressful situations. Awakening means to fully realize this truth. There is no Camelot, no perfect kingdom of eternal bliss, no permanent utopian commune of like-minded people. 
Our refuge is in our acceptance of the normality and reality of dukkha in the life of our community. Second, the truth of samudaya. The painfulness of situation arises both in individuals and in community from longing and clinging. You all know this, right? A beloved teacher moves away. A place we were meeting is no longer available. A Sangha member dies, leaving a hole in the community. Part of the function of ceremonies in community is to come together to process samudaya in memorial services, for example. In our own community of Appamata, we have a weekly inquiry program where a teacher meets the questions and challenges brought by community members. In this way, a painful personal situation can be held, witnessed, and shared across the whole community. But the community itself must grapple with its own longing, perhaps for a dedicated space, or a teacher, or financial stability. It helps to name and acknowledge the painful qualities of situations to recognize the longing and clinging that arise together with them. <clears throat> In this way, the Sangha can honestly attend to the suffering and distress felt throughout the community. Third is the truth of Niroda. Dukkha arises, therefore Dukkha can cease. This is non-trivial. The Buddha spoke of cessation not as a gradual easing, but like a candle that's extinguished or a fire that has entirely consumed its fuel. The cessation of dukkha in community is immediate when its members clearly see and fully accept the situation as it is. And really, what other choice do we have? Address it with wisdom and compassion, let go and move on. This is far easier said than done. I have observed communities that are still mired in self-created suffering over events that happened 25 years ago. One might think that members were gratified by their own distress. In fostering Neuroda, the extinction of suffering, wise leadership is essential. Wise and compassionate leaders clearly articulate the situation without amplifying the distress, model how to meet the situation with some equanimity, and offer a vision for addressing it skillfully, letting go and moving on. This is liberation at the community level. Well, how is that possible? I'm glad you asked. We come to the fourth noble truth, the truth of Marga. The Buddha taught that there is indeed a path, the noble eightfold path to the cessation of suffering. This path is called Marga. This eightfold path applies as much to communities as to individuals. Marga refers to the middle of a river where the water flows freely, not impeded by rocks and branches and not diverted into side streams and eddies. So life aligned with the eightfold path also flows freely for individuals and for sanghas. So what might this eightfold path look like for communities? Today, I'm just gonna talk about the first four of the eight steps in the Eightfold Path. They're not sequential steps. They're more like fractal dimensions that reflect each other at every level of scale from the individual to the planet. So first of all, the first of the Eightfold Steps is right view. So a community can support right view through welcoming all views and using shared discernment 
wisdom, and compassion to fully understand the situation, life as it is. That includes not only the situation within the community, but the situation of the community in the larger world. So this step can never be realized through a simple-minded focus on individuals. Excuse me, someone's knocking at the door. just a package. I didn't know that they did deliveries on Sundays. <clears throat> okay, so um, this step of right view can never be realized through a simple-minded focus on individuals. It must include not only the human conditions and individual preferences, but expand to take an ecological perspective of living systems in which humans play a small role. This includes the physical world, both natural and man-made, <clears throat> social systems and organizational systems, communication networks, psychological currents, and spiritual dimensions of any situation. Such a perspective views time on a much larger scale, eons, centuries, generations, which therefore includes instants, hours, and weeks. An ecological perspective foregrounds relationships, processes, and flows that are include, but are not centered on individuals or objects. In considering community, we are observing its health and well-being through flows of information, <coughs> power, and resources. <clears throat> we look at how relationships are organized and supported. Is the social architecture fostering healthy, wise, and compassionate relating? Are the dynamics of power and its distribution understood? And are they clearly supporting the well-being and development of the community? Are resources available as needed, and are there processes for gathering and wisely using them? Is the community avoiding wasteful action that does not serve its purposes? The ecological perspective seeks to understand whole systems so that they can continue to evolve in healthy, dynamic functioning in accord with our shared aspirations, which leads us to right intention. So the second part of the Eightfold Path is right intention. What is the aspiration of a community that goes beyond the individual aspirations of its members? An ecosystem is categorically different from an assembly of different individual parts. It is organically constituted and evolves as a living organism. What is its role in the larger ecosystems in which it is situated? In other words, why do we come together and how does that matter in the world around us? We need to continually engage in this inquiry. 
without active investigation of our intention and aspiration as a community, we could drift into unhealthy or dangerous waters or fall under the spell of a charismatic charlatan or be pushed by an aggressive person or faction into an unsound path. By continuing to examine our collective intention for the community in alignment with the Buddha's teachings and our Bodhisattva vow, we can evolve and develop our spiritual community toward deeper purpose and meaning, intimacy and trust. <clears throat> the key is care that is wise, mindful and energized. As a community, we weave the fabric of an enlightened life together, caring for and supporting each other through difficult times, joyous occasions, and ordinary everyday living. We can do this easily and happily if there's a shared aspiration for it, for finding the ways to bring, to bring our individual vows in concert with the larger good. That means clear communication systems and processes for inviting community collaboration, as well as the vision and scaffolding provided by wise leadership. That leadership may be provided by a single person, such as a spiritual teacher, or by a cooperative system such as we have at Apamata, including teachers, councils, and the board. Together, we engage in the ongoing alignment and definition of our intention as a community and envision the path ahead and the world we aspire to bring into being, a world that is wise, compassionate, connected, ethical, and enlightened. Which leads us to right speech, the third step in the Eightfold Path. In every community, there are norms about speaking. Who speaks, when to speak, what to speak about, who gets to speak to whom. Spiritual communities are no different. The norms may be shaped by tradition, by intention, or by accident. Even in casual, completely democratic spiritual communities, study groups, small meditation groups, and so on. There are norms for speech, as linguistic research quickly reveals. Norms are generally implicit rather than openly discussed, except when someone is new to the community or when new groups are being formed up, when this topic might be part of the process. So for example, in therapy groups, there are agreements about confidentiality, uh, and those agreements help create an atmosphere of trust. Therefore, implicit biases around gender, race, or socioeconomic class, for example, are pervasive, even though invisible to participants. Some things just never come up. Implicit biases are complicated by the community norms for roles. In our zendo, for example, only a teacher or a monitor can offer a correction during a zazen period. There may be particular speech events, ceremonies, or practice discussion with teachers, for example, that have their own norms that structure interactions. All of these shape the life of the community, its ways of relating, and its ways of knowing itself. The norms provide structure, continuity, and meaning for the community, but they are also adaptive and dynamic. They too require ongoing inquiry in the community to uncover and address unconscious bias unhealthy patterns, or drift into meaningless chatter and superficial relating. Right speech in community is foundational. It helps create our shared reality. And so we train and cultivate skills for nonviolent communication, 
mindful speech, anti-racism, helpful feedback, and so on in the service of the Sangha. This also brings benefits for our families, neighborhoods, and workplaces within which our Sangha is embedded. Fourth is right action. Right action is the concrete embodied expression of right view and right intention. While a community may share a clear view of the situation, may hold the highest aspirations, and may even espouse them in their speech, without realizing them in action, they remain only a dream. Right action fulfills our vow and makes it manifest in the community and in the world. Right action prevents our intentions from remaining vague ideals and fantasies. Further, right action cures disabling hesitation, doubt, anxiety, fear, and despair. In Sangha, it models connection and care, encouraging and inspiring others both within and beyond the community. In a certain sense, spiritual community can only be established through shared activity. We meditate together, engage in services and ceremonies, and deepen our connections through intensives and shared practices such as sewing, book study, and special interest groups, young Zen, women in Zen, and so forth. Apamata's councils meet to plan the actions that will support and strengthen the community. <clears throat> Care of the gardens, the inside of the house, the calendar agenda, and the organization of intensives. The activities of the board guide our financial and ethical policies as a community. And importantly, there are many informal social activities, such as brunch after the Sunday program and casual meetings on the porch. Although some of these have been suspended during the pandemic, Sangha members have still found creative ways to come together safely in small groups for the morning walk around the golf course and sitting together outdoors in a Sangha member's yard and the Four Seasons Dharma Walk, for example. We care for those who are ill or who have lost loved ones. Trustworthy, wise, compassionate, and ethical action serves to build community in many ways. It engages community members so that they come to know and trust each other more deeply. It enacts the care the community shares for all beings. It brings joy, for example, when members come together for a potluck or a workday, or online for a film night. Of special importance are right actions in the larger community. Buddhists can tend to be inwardly focused, both individually and as sanghas. But we must never forget our role in conveying the Dharma for the welfare and liberation of the whole world. Apamata has marched as a community in support of equality for women, for people of color, for LGBTQ rights, and for science. We participate in our local interfaith alliance, teach about the Dharma at the university, and for various groups that meet around the area, civic groups, businesses, nonprofits, schools. Conveying the wisdom and compassion of the Buddha's teaching beyond the community so that it can permeate the whole world is even more urgent and necessary as I right now, in the midst of global pandemic, climate crisis, and political instability. We must help humanity find a better way to live or even more of our world will perish. Our Buddhist Action Now group exemplifies taking wise action in the world, organizing the Sangha for the greatest influence and impact. 
In coming together, our collective energy is more powerful than our solitary actions, and it is an antidote to feelings of helplessness and despair. The actions of the spiritual community speak louder than words. Although our central practice is meditation, we must not become passive or self-centered. Meditation and shared inquiry deepens our wisdom, clarity, and freedom so that our actions, both as individuals and as a community, can be truly beneficial and liberating and serve our shared aspiration and vows well. Right action for community does not necessarily require some public expression. It may be quietly serving the needs of recent immigrants, a Sangha member with cancer, or the community gardens. If we can foster more harmonious families, kinder workplaces, and an ethical and wise government, even at the local level, we will be fulfilling our bodhisattva vow through right action. When we do this together, we greatly multiply the liberating force of the Dharma. We do not proselytize, we illuminate. We meet cruelty with wisdom and skillful means. We meet deprivation with compassion. We meet greed with a life of simplicity and restraint. Together we are proving that people can live in harmony with each other, even in polarizing times, that we can cherish and learn from our differences, and that we can act in support of our precious world, free from hostility, grasping, and ignorance. This is an overview of the first part of the Buddha's teachings seen from the point of view of Sangha. <clears throat> there are scholarly books, articles, and popular teachings about the Buddha's direct teachings about Sangha or civic life when the Buddha instructed kings, fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, and his own disciples. The Buddha was very concerned with building an enlightened society as his own world was shifting from warring kingdoms to city-states. So it's important to consider what he directly said about community, but it is also very important to consider the core teachings, such as the Four Noble Truths, the precepts, the paramitas, and the chain of dependent origination, not only from the individual perspective, but from the much larger perspective of the community and the whole ecosystem in which we are enmeshed. So next week, Lori will be offering the Dharma talk. So I'll continue with the second part of this talk in two weeks. Um, and I wanted to allow uh, time for breakout groups. Again, and see if there was anything that anyone in particular would like to share about what they heard or what, uh, what they were thinking. Mm -hmm. I was just talking about it. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, I was just um, talking about, um, I'm a member of the Lancaster UK Sangha and then became part of the Apamada Sangha during the pandemic and, and Zoom world, our new Zoom, Zoom lives. <laughs> and how, how they both mirror, how I don't feel like I'm in a different community. I feel like it's the same community with oh, the same ways and the same way of, of, of being. And, and I think for me, it was all, it's always about, it's always been about a person I've met and they've embodied everything that Apamada and the UK Sangha's, um, I don't know what's the word, you know, everything that they emit, everything that they are. And then th that's drawn me into initially in the nineties, it was Trudy who I met and she was my, um, 
therapy trainer and there was something about about Trudy that that allowed me to exist without interference without interruption without trying to change something and I think that's what Apamada and the UK Sangha's um, really kind of represent for me is that I'm allowed to be part of a community where I'm me but we all follow this way of, of not interrupting each other but walking with each other and and really being beside each other in a way that that is just it's just full of warmth and and challenge and all kinds of things but in such a deeply respectful way I'm so glad to hear that Maria because I often wonder about that exact thing you know how um how the fit is between the uk sanghas and um and what we're doing here and uh, and hopefully it's harmonious in the ways that you describe it seems really wonderful and um and a great blossoming of the dharma well absolutely yeah it's, it's just wonderful it's mm. just wonderful it's so when you think in the uk and you can just step into a door in austin and it's the same community. It's, it's, it's bizarre, really, isn't it? It's, you know, it doesn't, it's rare, it rarely happens, you know, that, that they mirror the same things. Very lovely. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. That's really wonderful. <clears throat> and thanks for sharing that. Now we know that we can go, go to the UK and we'll fit right in, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I actually what I was going to say, it so dovetails with what Maria is saying. Uh, what was most prominent for me with our group was just the enormous gratitude that everyone feels for Apamata. Oh, and um, uh, yeah. Uh, but one thing that uh, actually, uh, Shashi said, I want to reiterate, and it fits with what Maria is saying, and that is um, that uh, she and several others of us uh, I resonated with is uh, really so appreciates this uh, Zoom form that we've acquired and, and does not want to um, lose it once things change because it's offered ways of connecting uh, that aren't available otherwise, both for some of us that are actually in the area, um, but then also this larger Sangha that we have now, it, um, it will be interesting to see how we can uh, continue to incorporate this. Yeah, I think we. I think for the foreseeable future, we'll be in hybrid environments where uh, Zoom is a feature as well as uh, in-person participation when that's possible. Yeah, I don't anticipate cutting off the Zoom feed ever. So that's where we are. I expect we'll be doing it for a long time. It is different, of course, you know, and it will feel different when people come back into the Zendo, but hopefully in a good way. You know, all these seats behind me will be filled mm -hmm. with people. <laughs> well, look a little bit more, you know, like a Zendo, <laughs> but less like a, I don't know, movie set or something. <laughs>
for weddings for the actors. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a delightful morning, and I hope wherever you are that you get a chance to get outdoors. And it's course afternoon there. I'm going to try and figure out uh, the uh, open intensive that starts in December. I'm going to try and figure out how to set up the schedule and set up the uh, technological piece of it so that we can, so people can be coming and going as they wish. Um, and, uh, and maybe in some kind of webinar format, maybe the way that we need to do that. And so that I can go and let a puppy out occasionally and <laughs> manage the schedule. And so that people can participate in the UK or they can participate from Hawaii or wherever they are. So, um, so if we have a full day schedule, People can come in and out whenever they, you know, need to, and it's not quite so structured as a um, a regular intensive. It's an, literally an open intensive, so people can come and spend an hour in the middle of shopping or whatever, um, and, and spend as much time as they would like to. Even if I'm not in the zendo, we'll leave the um, cameras on, so people can come and sit virtually. Uh, and um, and we'll see how oh. that works. What? Somebody said something. Hmm. Okay, so we'll figure out how, how to do that. I'll have to work with our crack AV staff who are entirely volunteer. We have so much knowledge. We'll figure out some way to do it. Okay, so maybe we should finish with service and um, and people can get out into this beautiful day. <laughs>